0: Hello, and thank you for coming to Meet the influentials. Today, I have to question the very title of this podcast, do influentials really exist? In today's world, with its constant barrage of information and noise, it can be difficult to stand out. But some organizations and individuals have managed to become true thought leaders, shaping the way we think and talk about the issues of our time. So what sets them apart? What makes them influential, even if they work with abstract, complex, long-term issues? And how can others achieve similar success? Today we have the perfect guest to help us answer these questions. Paul Constance is a master of public influence. He worked for years as chief of strategic communications at the Inter-American Development Bank, a very large bureaucracy. He now studies what he calls slow policy problems and consults for organizations that are working for very long-term change. If influentials do exist, I'm sure Paul knows how to create them. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Influentials.
1: They're influential, they're intellectuals, yep, you've got it, they are the influentials.
0: This is a podcast about research communications.
1: I'm John Schwartz, I'm the CEO of Soapbox, we're a design agency working with a lot of the world's leading think tanks, academic institutions and NGOs.
0: And I'm Sonia Jalfin, Director of Socio Público, a strategy and communication studio for complex ideas.
1: We're on a mission to find out the best ways to communicate knowledge, ideas and evidence.
0: So each episode we are meeting a leading influential who can help us on that mission.
1: Today we welcome Paul Constance. How are you doing, Paul? Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, Paul, um, one question that we had to ask you is, you know, really, is intellectual influence even possible today? Um, And if so, how do we go about achieving that? (laughs) So I think
2: it is, but with a giant caveat. I think most of the time the answer is no, sadly. I like to be humble and realistic about this. It doesn't happen easily, and it doesn't happen often. I have one sort of central idea to bring to the table as to when it succeeds, and it has to do with being in it for the long game. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you a short story about someone I met in high school that really brought this home to me this year. His name is Jeff Swanson, he's a sociologist at Duke. I met him when he was just a young guy. Um, and he decided early in his career to focus on the psychology of violence and the intersection between mental illness and like gun violence mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. So, as you know, gun violence in the U.S. is possibly the most contentious and the most complicated public policy issue, sort of an eternally frustrating and, and heartbreaking you know, logjam of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking early on when I heard of his choice, like, good luck with that, Jeff, you know, like <laughs> stepping into that mess. And for years and years, he published research, he did conferences, he did books, he did what an academic does. But frankly intending to be part of the public conversation. And I'll be honest with you, I had a pessimistic reading of how it was going for him because this whole debate in America seems to be stuck. Except you may have heard in the news a few months ago after yet another horrible mass killing in the US, the Biden administration uh, saw an opportunity to put forward some legislation. Mm -hmm. And we all got caught off guard by this, that suddenly there were enough votes in Congress Republican and Democratic votes to pass what's been described as the biggest, most consequential piece of gun legislation in 30 years. And all of a sudden, my friend Jeff Swanson was being quoted all over the news, explaining why a central piece of this legislation has to do with this thing called red flags, which is Mm -hmm. the idea that when you know someone has mental health issues and they may have access to a gun, it's a good idea to tell the police Mm -hmm. and do an early intervention. Well, it turns out that Jeff, for 20 years, has been working on this issue, researching mm-hmm. it, traveling the country, building a community of people who understand that this is probably the single most effective thing you can do about gun
0: rights. Yeah, let's go back to that in a minute. I think that's right? interesting. Yeah.
2: So the big lesson for me in his life story is he is an influencer, to, to answer mm-hmm. your core yeah. question. You would not have described him as one Mm-hmm. Most of his career he wasn't he was sometime on the news he was sometimes asked to come to Capitol Hill, but he wasn't a rock star. his issue was just too uncomfortable. But what I think he and his community did was they saw this on the horizon as something that you had to build yeah. consensus and evidence for over time in the hope that at some point the political confluence will come together and create an opportunity hmm. for legislation right so There's a lot behind that, but I think that people who want to be influencers in public policy, they need to have a very long game because public policy changes in legislatures, right? It doesn't change because you get a movie made or Mm -hmm. a documentary or an invitation to the Oscars. It has to go through legislatures, and that's messy and slow. So I'm interested in people who have that kind of stamina to become influencers in that space.
0: Hmm. But that sounds so counterintuitive with the fact that we live so in in this very very rapid news environment. We have to be alive on social media all the time or in the the news. So how how can we make those two (laughs) realities work together?
2: So you're absolutely right. And I'll tell you another brief anecdote of from my life that, that brought that into focus. I started my career as a research assistant at a think tank in New York City called the Population Council. Mm-hmm. They're a typical old-school think tank founded by Rockefeller, a lot of money, a lot of academic researchers. I was like 24 when I, when mm-hmm. I was there. And I met this guy who was the chief demographer there, a Dutch-American demographer named John Bongartz who had this aura of like eminence around him. And he was already a very prominent demographer, and he continues to be. He's 78, but he's still active. And yet one thing I have to say about John Bargartz is that I never saw him sort of quoted in the general news. Yeah. He's a guy who has a huge Google Scholar profile. He's cited all the time, but no one knows who he is, right? Mm. In the last three years, I've been tracking the rise of a very young man, he must be maybe 35, who hasn't even gotten his degree yet. He's a demographer in training. Mm-hmm. The fascinating thing for me is to juxtapose the two trajectories of their careers towards being influentials, because they both aspire to, I have no doubt about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. The young man, his name is Lyman Stone, um, does maybe three things that I think are, are, are significant that this older guy never did. One, he doesn't stay in his lane. The lane is demography, which is a very Mm -hmm. technical academic field. Mm. Lyman Stone likes to jump into adjacent lanes, family policy, politics, Mm -hmm. religion, and he's constantly opining, right? So (laughs) the other day he published an op-ed on why the voting age should be reduced to zero. Very provocative and weird idea that has to do with the the demographic crisis that the world is having and giving more weight to children politically. Mm-hmm. But he's tangling with the world of political science, with the world of voting, which he as a demographer, you could say, has no authority to do so. But he does that all the time. Mm-hmm. He uses social media. He puts out requests for people to participate in surveys on social media. He provokes people. He gets into Twitter, you know, mud fests, all things that this <laughs> other guy for almost genetic reasons would never be inclined to do. But what's the outcome? Lyman Stone is quoted all the time now. If there's an article on demography, there's a very high probability that the reporter just calls him. John Bongartz, who is an eminence in demography, continues to be unknown. So none of this is surprising, but it's notable that you still see that divergence. You know, if Mm. you're going to be an influencer today, you have to be present in multiple spaces. And frankly, you have to be Promiscuous in communication, and I use that word on purpose because this <laughs> guy—he's never said no to a podcast interview request. Yeah. He's never said no to a column. He shows up everywhere. You know, so it's a decision to devote probably forty percent of his time to aggressive communication. Mm-hmm. It works. You know, in his mid-thirties, he's far more influential than this eminent demographer in his mid-70s.
0: So it seems that it's really like a decision one have to make, whether you want to work towards becoming an influential, as we call them here, or, or not, uh, and, and then put some hours into that. But, but what, what do you think is the most effective way to use uh, those hours, to, to use that time? You, you mentioned being controversial that's already difficult when you work right. on a large organization or a bureaucracy i guess so let's start with that <coughs> one is it possible to be controversial if you're working on, in an organization that needs to use back channels to achieve influence and that that is taking care of its political correctness and all these other things that that are uh, are, are like the yeah. the regular way of working for these organizations
2: so if i had one major takeaway from having worked in a large uh, non-profit bureaucracy for many years was that it's extremely difficult to do this within those contexts. Um, the culture of large organizations is inherently cautious and inherently discourages provocation and, and, and all the attributes I kind of described in limestone. and Stone. So the blunt answer, and I remember having this conversation with some young aspiring influentials, mm-hmm at some point saying, you know, you're probably going to have to leave and go to a context where you have that liberty. A pattern I've seen over and over again is that small NGOs beat the big bureaucracies all the time in this. Um, When I was at the Inter-American Development Bank, they had decided to invest a lot in the whole area of citizen security and crime. They built a team of like 50 specialists. They had a significant research effort going on. Um, They were not being heard or recognized as thought leaders in this space. But at the same time, a tiny little NGO in Brazil, the Igarapé Institute, got started, Um, like three people. (laughs) And they just immediately began doing the things that a place like the IDB could not.
0: For instance?
2: Well, they started putting out an annual um, report on homicides in Latin America, which was a kind of shocking and harrowing thing to read. And they used infographics very, very effectively to show you just the sheer scale of the loss of life from gun violence. Um, This is something that governments hate to see published because it makes them look awful. So no government is ever going to be enthusiastic about a report like that. And yet it instantly, instantly, within two or three years, became the go-to source for journalists or policy. Experts talking about this because it very quickly told you, here's where we are, here's what's changing, in an easily digestible format. So th- those are basic things to do. You're not going to get permission to do them, inside a large bureaucracy, right? Yeah, but so,
0: the, the flip side of that uh, is that it might work very well for smaller organizations to try to find these spots. And I know you are great at doing that, finding these spots where there are other organizations that cannot speak, cannot say something and going exactly there to, to find your way into influence. Is that right?
2: I think that's just, it's a legitimate tactic. It's worked over and over again. The problem is you—you you know if you're also trying to like raise a family and pay off a mortgage, the, the <laughs> tiny NGO may not be the most viable mm. option. So most people work for large organizations that end up providing the research funds to do a lot of this work. But this paradox is more or less permanent. The people who end up telling the story in a compelling way or trying to change policy have to have the freedom, um, and I'm not sure there's a, a perfect way around that dilemma.
1: So, thinking about a little bit about how you know experimental psychology or neuroscience sort of plays into this: how do our brains work when yeah. we're talking about when we're talking about communication, and how can these kind of these kind of things kind of play into? Um, you know, influencing policy, I guess, through triggering things in people's brains or triggering metaphors in people's brains.
2: Yeah. So I'm fascinated by, you know, the explosive growth of behavioral economics and related psychology in the, in the last few years, and I read a lot about it, um, particularly in everything having to do with uh, time perception mm-hmm. and temporal biases, the way mm-hmm. that our mind messes up our ability to understand change slow change in time. That's my particular interest. Like most other areas of uh, behavioral science, what I think we've gotten really good at is diagnosing and explaining our limitations. (laughs) Like the science is so clear and compelling, telling you, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's why you don't see this. Um, I'm not the first to point out that where things are coming up short is translating that into tactics for overcoming those biases, right? Right.
0: Yeah, so or for even for using them in your favor, because I think m- most of that literature talks about how can I understand my biases to make better decisions, right. that's great, but also if I can understand what are the biases in other people's minds, the people I want to influence, I can also use that in my favor. Right. Some might think it's not the best tactic, but I, I think it, it works in... in I think it's perfectly
2: legitimate to try to harness those insights. I'll give you a quick example of an area where some limited progress has been made in the finance industry. Um, They come up against the problem of encouraging people to think about their long-term financial future and finding that most of us think, you know, three or four or five years ahead. Um, Someone, a psychiatrist, has actually pinned down a number that I find fascinating, which is 15 years and she concluded that after 15 years, the future goes dark for most of us, as mm-hmm. it it doesn't exist.
0: You know, there's this uh, neuroscientist working in, in London, his Argentinian, Joaquin Navajas, he's brilliant. And he, he even said that the future we really understand is the, the next four years. Right. So he says this is the, the problem of the next World Cup that we can only think <laughs> up until the next World Cup. Right?
2: <laughs> so this is an absolutely massive and central problem, I think, in all of public policy, because most public policy requires you to think quite a bit further down the road than four years. right? Mm-hmm. So the f- financial services industry, which has been more pragmatic about this, literally sitting down with someone and trying to get them to invest more in their retirement, for instance, has done some things I'm sure you've heard of. Um, taking a person's photo and aging it Hmm. to trigger a conversation about Mm -hmm. who are you 30 years from now? What do you like? What do you look like? What will your needs be? It actually works. I don't know of all the time, but I've heard a lot of finance professionals say that at least reframes the future for someone, right? Outside of that space, we're not making a lot of progress. Look at the debates right now in France, in the U.S., or in Chile, to name three very different countries, about pension reform. Mm -hmm. Macron is getting nowhere. Every time he tries to talk about that, everyone comes out on the street and says no. Biden is fiddling with the idea of social security reforms and getting like preemptively shot down. And in Chile, this led to an absolute meltdown around three Mm -hmm. years ago, right? So the whole topic of how are we gonna fix pensions so that we're not all poor when we're old is absolutely stuck. So on a systemic level, we're not coming up with tricks as simple as showing someone a picture of their aged self. And I think we've got to start doing better. And I'm sorry I don't have the, the answer, mm. but this is a, a psychological wall that we, we run up against. And it's going to have a big price tag.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the financial industry might be better at thinking about that because, of course, they do have to think you know, 30, 40, 50 years in advance as to when they're going to have to pay our pensions, particularly so. So for them, it's it's obviously in their in their interest to do that. Political cycles are obviously usually working on five, five four years, five years right. kind of kind of kind of time. Can we overcome that, or are they on a four year time? Because that's the cycle that we can think in. Have we decided somehow subconsciously to put them on a four year cycle? It's because, funny, right? Like yeah. who came <laughs> up with four years, and it just
2: happens to be like the World Cup frequency, yeah. right? So. I think we can, but it's going to require um, some pretty radical creativity. Um, I read about a fascinating instance in Australia where a city needed to build a new bridge over a a river. And the community planning council sat down to look at alternatives and budgets. And the engineers said, all right, so here's a bridge. It costs this much. Somebody raised their hand and said, so so how long will the bridge be good for? And he said, well, standard 75 years service Mm -hmm. life. And somebody then said, 75 years, like, why just 75 years? That just means we're going to have the same problem when my son is, you know, middle-aged. Um, and it started a fascinating debate about, wait, wh- who decided 75 years, similar mm-hmm. to your question about yeah. why four? Yeah. <laughs> and maybe because it's Australia and it's a slightly wealthier country, after a whole bunch of discussions, they said, no, let's say 300 years. How much does it cost to build a 300-year bridge? How much more expensive is it than the 75-year option? Turns out it was only about 15% more. Mm -hmm. So they opted to build a 300-year bridge. But what's fascinating to me about that story is the process of imagining a future that must have come into the room, right? Mm -hmm. Like thinking, well, yeah, the city will still be here in 300 years, even with climate change and everything else. We might as well build a better bridge, right? So, I'm trying to think of analogous situations where you could engage people in a creative conversation about the future, but on much, much longer timeframes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's probably possible, but it's it's a, it's got to be a deliberate decision. Like they, so whoever asked, why 75 years? Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Probably we need these hooks, as you were saying, uh, to overcome our biases and and. Uh, but, but it's funny that we are not thinking of, of many more examples. I mean, it seems like so uh, productive to think about this.
2: Not only productive, but one thing you hear every day in the news is how young people right now have an extremely dark horizon, right? Mm-hmm. We're seeing evidence of this all the time with rates of anxiety and depression in young people. When you talk to them, one of the things they tell you is that their view of the future is just catastrophic, mm-hmm. right? So this is also like a very personal intimate problem inside families if you have a teenage kid right now you know what i'm talking about yeah it's like not a happy conversation so this is related for me to the challenge that you face talking to a teenager of helping them to imagine why it's not all gloom and doom Mm -hmm. that in fact things might turn out better than you feel they do today and they're like why give me evidence give me a reason teenagers are fantastically Mm. blunt on this front right Mm -hmm. We need to be coming up with some more persuasive stories for teenagers. The bridge example is a very kind of a technical one, but I'm trying to think what would engage a teenage brain into thinking, you know what, my life isn't necessarily going to be just like this complete catastrophe. So I'm fascinated by this because I think it, it, it connects to like very almost emotional things mm-hmm. for people
0: yeah and that's probably why it works to show someone his or her own face in the future because we need that connection with a personal story even more if it's about ourselves right. that's that's part of our biases you mentioned before uh the com- a community building a community as part of how you can become an uh influential person Um, Why have you mentioned that? I have my own ideas, but I'd like to listen to you.
2: I just think that that people who are serious about policy change start by understanding how complicated it is and how you need a lot of levers to be pressed at the same time. So for instance, the example I started with of uh, this uh, sociologist, Jeff Swanson. He discovered that where they got most traction was local governments. Local governments are quicker to make bold experiments mm-hmm. in public policy mm-hmm. so in some cities where they were freaking out about gun deaths he showed up and said here's how you can use a red flag strategy and they were like that's it we're putting it in the city mm-hmm. charter tomorrow so from that point forward he started realizing that a big part of his community was going to be local and state governments not just the central government in DC mm-hmm. right so th- the simple answer is that complex problems require a giant and mixed coalition of actors to ever get done. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, if you don't have that strategy in that network and you're just like a super smart wonk, it doesn't happen. Yeah,
0: but I also, I agree with that, absolutely. I also think that uh, when you get other people to, um, to support your idea, then it's easier for others to also support your idea because Without we tend to, that's something, uh, another thing coming from neuroscience is that we know that we tend, we, we want to agree with ourselves and with our group. Right. So if you want to make someone change his or her mind, uh, you probably need to tell them that their group is thinking the same as they are and they will feel comfortable enough to support you. But if um, if you uh, actually push them into changing uh their mind they want so uh let me just add in
2: this particular example what what you said is super true because people who are against guns live in a world that is completely different from people who love hunting and owning owning guns right Mm -hmm. and what i think jeff and many of his allies discovered at some point is until they could sit at a table with a gun owner and agree that a red flag law is a good intermediate solution that doesn't threaten their gun rights. Mm -hmm. They just weren't going to ever have the critical mass. But believe Mm -hmm. me, I'm sure there were progressives in his circle who were like, I will not sit down at the same table with these people. Mm -hmm. So there's that too, right? There's the pragmatism and the political smarts to make a coalition that isn't necessarily a group of people that will ever hang out together. Mm -hmm. But there's still a coalition.
0: Right. Yeah, and also even if you don't want to sit at the same table, if you can tell someone your group is supporting red flags, for instance, that's that will open the chance for them to support it much more quickly. And these are the strategies that we, we can use to, right. to make our ideas more influential.
2: I think what you're also putting your finger on is that it isn't just great communications and persuasive arguments. There is old-fashioned political tactics and strategy Mm. at work here you have to think about the coalition and that frankly none of those people were swayed by a beautiful powerpoint or by a Mm. eloquent op-ed they were swayed because jeff sat down with them and had a very awkward conversation where they came to an agreement but it so that you know both things were necessary jeff is a very good communicator Mm -hmm. he writes the Mm op-eds but he understood that he had to do old-fashioned mm-hmm. politics, like retail mm-hmm.
0: politics to do that. That's right. But it's funny because you have written one, some of the greatest op-eds I have read in my life, and so you are an specialist in writing very good op-eds. Do you think they still play a role? And and what are your me, uh, key tips for, for... So I
2: think op-eds have a limited role. They, they can spark and push conversations, but they... N- don't on their own ever lead to big policy change. You know, mm-hmm. I think you, I've, I've worked with clients who tend to get sort of dazzled by the op-ed, particularly mm-hmm. in a premium newspaper, right? Sort of as a prestige way of showing my yeah. view is up there. Th- the fact is they don't, very few people read op-eds and these prestige newspapers have small circulations. So I think, that, in fact, the best thing that I see come out of op-eds is forcing a group to crystallize their argument mm-hmm. and focus it and sharpen it, because yeah. the op-ed is 700 words, so you have to. Mm-hmm. That process is often very productive in terms of like discarding you know, useless half-baked ideas and, and boiling it down to your core mm-hmm. idea. But other than that, I, I don't overemphasize the importance of op-eds.
1: One of the things I'm kind of wondering from this is sort of whose job is it to build this community, to build, these, to build these coalitions. A lot of my work is, with, is with, with think tanks and I don't think that they would sort of see it as, as their job to go out and build this, this kind of community you've given us an example of, 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 of someone who's a, a great individual and a great activist and has taken it on, on themselves but if we were to sort of take that kind of model and scale it up mm. is it politicians is it activist groups who's, whose job is it to actually make this happen over the long term
2: there isn't a central authority. I don't think Jeff would describe himself or other people would describe him as a, quote, leader of a movement. Mm-hmm. He's part of a ad hoc coalition that that comes together at key moments, mm-hmm. right? I think that no one can get away with saying it's not my job, it's somebody else's job. Mm-hmm. The politicians alone aren't going to do it. The think tank wonks alone aren't going to do it. Yeah. So there has to be this kind of humility and generosity of spirit of saying, I need to show up to other people's things. I need to give them space and credibility as well. Um, But you're right. It's a tricky question because there isn't uh, often these movements don't have a leader. Yeah. A refrain I hear a lot in progressive circles in recent years is who's who's running this movement? Even with something (laughs) like Black Lives Matter or, you know, things that have really taken over the conversation. Mm -hmm. But then people are like, wait, wait, who's in charge? Yeah. Turns out there isn't actually yeah. anyone yeah, in charge. It
0: happened to me that someone wanted to interview in a very similar example uh, we had in, in, in Latin America with, with uh, female violence, uh, violence against females. Right. Uh, there was this huge movement uh, called Ni Una Menos, mm-hmm. and journalists were desperate to interview the leaders or to talk about someone right. or to learn about h- how they have organized, and the fact was that there was no, I mean, there was a group of people who initiated it, but there was not someone to be interviewed, so we have these framings to, to think about these issues and, and right. the, the way things work are quite different, more decentralized. Right.
2: What I try to avoid is the pessimism that sometimes takes over progressive conversations of saying, oh, we don't we don't have structure, discipline, leadership, a, a strategy. Because what you discover in the, in the stories we're sharing is that sometimes in a chaotic way, this amorphous mass of pressure leads to a law,
1: hmm. mm-hmm.
2: right? Nobody can really take full credit for that. Yeah. But it's a law. Mm-hmm. And it was changed for the better. So, I think we also need to like accept that that is how change happens oftentimes and not lament it, uh, but it can be frustrating on the way there when no one knows who's in charge or what the, what the game plan is. Right? Yeah,
0: and for us communicators who wants to, to feel that we are really doing something towards the change and maybe we, we cannot even understand exactly what we have done that have worked. Um, That's true. Going back to our craft, um, do, do you still think that framing ideas has some power? Is there a way we can try to do that?
2: I think framing is unavoidably important. I think it can be manipulative, but I don't have a problem with that. I'm a great believer in the notion that all communication is a kind of a contention and contest of ideas. Mm -hmm. From my first conversation with my teenage daughter in the morning (laughs) to a work meeting, we're always kind of battling for advantage and ideas, right? And we use all kinds of manipulative little emotional techniques Mm -hmm. in in that contest. You know, you need to be called out if you're being very manipulative or dishonest. But I think framing is a powerful tool um, that we can't avoid using. And we should, as many critics have pointed out about progressives in general, progressives need to be better at using powerful frames yeah because conservatives tend to use them well yeah and mm-hmm. to win a lot of battles right yeah so that's my view on on framing and I mean,
0: what are your tips for that how do you start when you uh, a client approach you with a new topic how do you start thinking about it and yeah. thinking about what's the best framing
2: you know i wish i i wish i had a simple formula i'm fascinated by by metaphor in general as a mental device and the way that we understand the world through metaphors to me seems a profound and basic insight, right? Um, I don't, I've read a ton of theoretical stuff on metaphors and framing, and I don't know of a, of a quick and easy formula. But let me, let me test something on, on the two of you that just popped into my head the other day, because lately I've been doing a lot of writing on, on demography and declining birth rates. And I'm like, how do we reframe the response, or the, the, the service that parents provide to society? Because what's happening in many cultures is we're getting to a point of realizing, you know what, in in an ideal world, not enough people are going to want to have kids. That's not because they're bad. It's just we didn't anticipate this, that like when you get most people the life they want, the average birth rate is going to be way below replacement, right? Mm -hmm. So what do we do? And I have an idea that that, uh, I'd I'd like your quick reactions to. Here in the U.S., there's a real reverence. Uh, to military service, it's part of the culture, they, yeah. you know, and something that you hear all the time when you run into a person on the street who is a member of the armed services. People just reflexively say, "Thank you for your service," uh-huh. when they greet them. Yeah, and it's considered a show of respect, right? Behind that, though, there's a whole bunch of thinking, which is, all right, not everyone wants to be in the armed services. It's dangerous; you can get killed. It's kind of a pain. You don't get paid well. So we want some people in our society to do that, right? So people in the armed services get benefits the rest of us don't get. They get special subsidies. They don't have to pay for college. Everyone thinks that's just great because we don't want to necessarily be that person who has Mm -hmm. to go to war. Mm -hmm. I think in the future, and I want your reaction, (laughs) when you run into a parent, (laughs) I think you're going to go up to that parent and you're going to say thank you for your service. Uh Uh-huh. And you're also not going to resent that that parent maybe doesn't pay taxes and get subsidized housing and a whole bunch of aggressive financial incentives that today were not quite there yet. But I wonder if we were to reframe parenting as a public service that we all agree we need because we want kids, we don't want the country to disappear, right? Mm -hmm. Then maybe we could walk away from this very culture war debate we're having today of parents versus non-parents and you know, child support subsidies versus not, you know. So what do you guys think? Would thank you for your service be a good well, line? I
0: would love to have a tax reduction because of all the work <laughs> I have done with my kids. As a parent, I think, you're in favor. I'm in favor as a, as a mother, yes. Um, I, I like how provocative this, this, this sounds. I'm sure that this can spark great conversations. But you know what and I mean? I think it's an on, example
2: on f- of, of why framing is essential. Like, this is maybe yeah. way over the top, but it, it can reset the conversation. It can move the, yeah. the boundaries. Actually, I
0: think that the fact that you're using this phrase, thank you for your service, that's something that we all understand so quickly, that's mm-hmm. really a great hook, uh, at least to open the conversation.
1: I think it's a fantastic idea. I mean, I'd love to, like you, Sonia, I'd love to be thanked my service as a parent the problem I think I have the problem I think I have with you if you want I can we, tell you
0: I can tell you right now John yeah. thank you for your service oh thank you, thank you. And, and indeed and indeed
1: and indeed you Paul do you have children yeah thank you for your service Paul um, and I think it's, it, it, it's a very very interesting idea I, I wonder whether parents is the right thing for this because we all have parents so, therefore, we all come, come at this with a long history of having parents. Yeah. And we may or may not thank them for their service. <laughs> right. Um, depending, depending Absolutely. On, yeah. So, 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 we come at it with, with, with preconceived um, ideas. But I like the idea. And it reminds me, you know, of how we can reframe particular occupations and, and, and so on and so forth, certainly in the pandemic during... Um, you know, in in the UK, we have a national health service which is revered. We have a revered national health service, and anyone who worked right. in the national health service was became this a hero. revered hero yep. person who was getting all kinds of. Mm. You know, I've got a friend who's a doctor, and he spent um, a lot of his time actually just. Um, allocating different free gifts which were being sent to the hospital bikes food all sorts of things and he was like you know um yeah you're a doctor but we don't actually need you what we need is intensive care nurses so your job today is to go down and take delivery of the gifts hmm. and, uh, and, <laughs> and, sort, and sort them out right. so we have this kind of yeah this uh, this reverence for different uh, people and frame them in different in different ways um one thing I sort of like to come back to, though, is when we're when we're thinking about sort of you know how we frame issues and how we build communities um, around issues. We've talked a lot um, about Jeff, and we've talked a lot about a very positive yeah. um, example. But surely, surely the anti-Jeff mm-hmm. exists out there as well. And are we are we in a sort of battle with the anti-Jeff?
2: We're not in a battle. It's just a harsh reality that the vast majority of people working in public policy are not known and are not influencing mm-hmm. right and, and this isn't because they're dumb or they've made a ton of mistakes it's very very hard to get heard in these crowded spaces about complex issues um, so i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's a battle with them i mm-hmm. just think that uh you know if this demographer for instance that i mentioned if the older demographer mm-hmm. were to start over he might make different choices mm-hmm. um today like this younger power is. And, and I think we as communicators do have a modest role of helping on that front. I think that uh, there's, I'm sure you both have many stories of people who were kind of stuck in a place of no influence mm-hmm. and with some training and some guidance and a strategy, they began to surface more, right? So I think it's a valuable, uh, in fact, the most gratifying part of my career mm-hmm. has been moments when some academic or technical specialist feels for the first time understood and for the first time like maybe they're beginning to shift the conversation and they're very grateful for the the, you know the modest help that we communicators can provide on that
1: front yeah is part of our job then as communicators to spot those opportunities absolutely to know these people and to go this guy is great here's his chance now i see it
2: it is and and even to think of the issues that are stuck Mm. I think as non-specialists, that's sometimes our great asset mm-hmm. is that we look at stuff superficially and ask dumb questions. Mm-hmm. Why is this not moving, right? And I find over and over again that people who've spent a career as specialists in a field, they gradually lose their ability to step back and see things that way. Yeah, It's a real handicap. They cannot perceive why their topic is not understood. So that role, um, we were talking about this recently, Sonia, yeah. of looking out at the, at the big policy debates and saying, hmm, you know, why is this view getting no traction at all? Mm-hmm. We not, may not be invited to sort of answer that question, but I like occasionally providing my own answer and then maybe provoking people in that community by saying, have you thought of it this way?
1: Mm-hmm. Let me just give you sort of, you know, to, to, to one more challenge in terms of the sort of, you know, the long term yeah. thinking thing, which is around. So we, we, we've talked about building a bridge for 300 years. Yeah. Um, isn't it more likely than not that within that 300 year time period, something that we haven't thought of, there'll be an earthquake which will shatter the bridge, there'll be a war in Australia and someone will bomb the bridge, we'll all start going around in flying cars and we don't need bridges anymore isn't it more likely than not that something like that will happen
2: there is a there is a real risk of that and there are people in the, you know where the long-term thinking debate is most sort of uh, brutally candid is in investment circles again mm-hmm. so there's always been a group of investors who say we should invest for the long run we should be like warren buffett yeah. you know invest mm-hmm. for 30-year returns yeah and then there's people on wall street who say i'm investing for the next 30 minutes mm-hmm. and i'm using quants and you know supercomputers and eking tiny bits of value out of trades, and I could care less about the future, right? So they, these two communities have been arguing for years, and on one side, people say what you just have, which is how can we know what will happen? But look, I would push back and say the following: most of the big policy issues, particularly in, in advanced or middle-income countries today, are about ultra-long-term challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, we've fixed the nuts and bricks and mortar types of problems we have electricity and water and transportation, um, we're, we're not doing well at thinking about climate change, population decline, and, and related things. So I feel like even with the caveat of not being able to fully predict it, let me give you an example to wrap up that, that I always come back to as a great instance of why this makes sense. And you're a Londoner, or you live in London?
1: Uh, I do, yeah.
2: Okay, so you, you, you're intimately familiar with the story of the big stink on mm-hmm. the Thames, yep. right? So the big stink was this moment in the 19th century when the pollution of the Thames River became so intolerable because it was full of human feces Mm -hmm. that society as a whole said, all right, this can't go on any longer, right? Uh, And that moment tends to happen in all big cities that are on the edges of a river. Mm -hmm. It's just just a a normal progression from dumping raw sewage and waste into the river until it gets to Mm -hmm. the point where you can't stand it anymore. But what I'm fascinated by is the the discussion around that sort of crisis moment. What do we do? The news is always really bad. Fixing this problem costs billions of dollars. You have to build a sewage system, wastewater treatment plants. They're like the most expensive things to build. The next bit of bad news is even after you do that, the river doesn't come back to life for like 50 to 70 years. Mm -hmm. So imagine being a congressperson selling this project to your constituents (laughs) going to give you a big tax increase we're going to build this stuff and maybe your grandchildren will be able to go fishing in the Thames River right right now for some reason maybe because of the smell (laughs) people like are okay let's just do it right yeah so that focuses our thinking and all this stuff we've been discussing suddenly people are like it's worth it yeah I don't know London will be like in 50 years or whether we'll even be living here, but the smell is driving me nuts. (laughs) We know that we don't want it to stink. Right?
0: (laughs) But... It's another thing from behavioral economics that you have to be to the senses, so...
2: Right? In this case... Exactly. In this case, like everything comes together. But to me, it's a beautiful instance of what we need to be doing in other areas, which is, let's imagine this distant point in the future where you can go fishing again in the Thames, even if it's a total abstraction. Yeah. And, I, you know, I want to go back and read because I've heard there were some amazing speeches given in Parliament mm-hmm. at the time where people actually became really eloquent and trying to capture this, this notion like, folks, imagine, like I was in London last spring. The riverfront is the best place in the city. That's yeah. where you want to be all day long. Yeah. It's mm. full of music and restaurants and parks. It's like the best thing in the city, right? Yeah. So it was a fantastically wise investment to have made a century ago mm-hmm. and ha- so how do you connect those two things I, I think it can be done yeah but it to me that's like the big next challenge in our field is engaging people's imagination on projects like this that where the payoff may be for our grandkids yeah um, I'm not sure exactly how to do it, but I know we need to get better at it
1: you're leading
0: us with a great challenge. <laughs>
1: Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Um, So one thing we're doing for the end of each episode of this podcast um, is what we want to do is we want to create a little space for the people who've been listening to the podcast to think about what they've heard. It's not the call to action that we are so familiar with in comms. It is the call uh, to think. Uh, So what we're going to do, we're going to leave everyone with two minutes of, of ambient sound, just some nice background noises, Uh, for two minutes to think about what they've heard today and we're going to ask you to choose what sound should people listen to when they're thinking about what you've told us.
2: So sticking with the idea of a river, rivers begin in streams that converge and so think of the sound of a burbling stream Mm. you know a clean stream before it gets polluted and the idea of all that water flowing into a big urban basin and uh, of it still being
1: clean when it gets there. So I think we can probably found, find some sound of that. Great. So we're going to leave everyone with the sound of a beautiful, clear, burbling stream. Uh, think about what Paul has told us today. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. It's great to be here. You've been listening to Meet the Influentials with me, John Schwartz and my co-host, Sonia Jelfin. Production was by Lara Shishati-Praise. Post-production was by Dario Jelfin. This podcast is produced by Soapbox and Socio Publico, two design and communications agencies working at the intersection of research and social progress. You can learn more about us at designbysoapbox.com and sociopublico.com and feel free to contact us with ideas for future episodes. Just use the email addresses you'll find on our website. Thanks for listening.